welcome. Uh, if you need a Bible, if you don't have one, we have ushers with them. So just raise your hand and we will go ahead and bring you a Bible. If you don't have one, this is yours to keep. Just go ahead and take it home, write your name in it, um, put it under your pillow, read it at night. Um, and, you know, if you fall asleep to it, don't feel guilty. There's worse ways to fall asleep. So uh, I encourage you to, to uh, read that on a regular basis. We're getting into a brand new series today on Song of Songs. It's this invitation to intimacy. And I have the whiteboard up here just really today. I don't think I'll need it the rest of the series. But I wanted to share with you just for a moment the reason why our world, our culture, us as a church, we need this series. Why we need to be reading this book, especially where we are at right now with the culture. And the first thing is this. I want to just go down this line of thinking with you. So just go with me. How, what was the last thing somebody ordered from Amazon? Just, just shout it out. What did you order? Books. Okay, don't shout it all out at the same time. That, that really doesn't help me. No, I'm sorry. What did you order? Light bulbs. Right? Were you emotionally attached to these light bulbs? No, it's just a transaction, right? Light bulbs are just a product. Because Amazon sells products, right? That's what they do. That's what they're in the business of. They sell products. You're not emotionally attached to them or anything. It's not like, oh, this is the greatest light bulb. What a lovely lamp, you know? It's nothing like that or anything weird. It's just a product, right? And we all have social media, right? We all have Facebook or Instagram and things like that. And, and these are things that we're on every day. We're always on Amazon. We're always on Facebook. We're always on Instagram. But except for they're not selling bulbs necessarily, what it is is that we become the product. The people become the product a little bit, right? And, and it's all about how many likes did I get and, and how many comments did I get or how many people did I reach, how many new friends do I have, how many people I have following me. It, it's about all of these things. You know? Do I have all this stuff? Am, am I the product? Am I the brand? And, and it's... This is, it's just a little leap there. It's, it's all of a sudden, instead of light bulbs being the product, people are the products. And then if, if any of you have been watching TV lately, probably none of you have, and you're all great Christians, and you just watch, you know, VeggieTales or something like that at home, you know, reruns, because that was a great show, by the way. But if you're watching TV, one of the things that pops up over and over and over again is the way dating has changed, right? They're using apps like Tinder, and since you're all great Christians, you don't know what this is. So let me just explain it to you real quick. And, and, and that is like you swipe right if you like the person and you swipe left if you don't like the person, right? Just based on their looks. So all of a sudden, it's these two mixed and combined where the people are the product, right? And it's just transaction. And, and if you're watching and paying attention to culture and to TV and to all these things, and, and this has been happening for years Sex has simply become a transaction of knowing each other. And, and it's just become that, right? It's like, oh, we had dinner tonight. Oh, time to go have sex. Oh, we, did, we saw each other tonight. We went on our first date. Oh, let's deal with sex. People who don't know each other too well are turning it into a transactional relationship. And it's something that we do in our society all the time. Now, in of itself, transaction's not wrong. We need it. Like, our economy needs transaction. We need uh, just human transaction. And sometimes at work and relationships, you just need to get things done. But when you overlay sex onto transaction, it's marked by this. It's physical. It's fast. And it's simply a transaction. And that's it. 
And, and this is the world in which we live in. Sex is so transactionalized. I don't even know if that's a word, but if it's not, just go ahead and write it in your dictionary, and um, it'll become a word after today. But it has simply become a transaction. It's totally devoid of emotion, and it's just what people do. I mean, am I, am I on the right path here? Do you guys see this on TV and culture? And uh, you see it everywhere. But there's a different way that the Bible likes to talk about it, right? If this is just a transaction, then what the Bible actually talks about is, is intimacy. And intimacy is slow. Intimacy has emotion. And intimacy is characterized by friendship. These are all polar opposites to the way these act, Right? And so we see these two things at play, but it sort of seems like lately our world has completely forgotten about the intimacy side of this. If you pay attention at all to media, right, we've just totally forgotten this, and we're trying to be pushed and shaped into this mold of people are products, and sex is merely a transaction. There's nothing emotional about it. It's just people are products. That's what you do. If you're dating, that's just all you do, right? And more and more and more, we're seeing this in our society. But I want to argue with you guys in this series, and, and I've got some great statistics to back this up, that we're going to start going through the book of Song of Songs today. And I want to argue with you that this is actually the better path, that God laid this path out for all of us. And if you're in a place today where you're living on this side, uh, you know, I think there's some great benefits to moving over to this side. And if you're in a place today where you are living on this side, then awesome. God bless you. I want to paint a beautiful picture for what's to come. Um, we're going to start going through the book of Song of Songs. Now, before we do that, this is a, this is a bit of a, a series, and so i got to do some introduction work today on what the Song of Songs is all about. And it's a book of the Bible that's so thin you might just flip right past it. It's between the books of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament and Isaiah. So if you're looking for it in the Bible, go to Isaiah and go backwards, and it, you'll find it there. It's just a few pages long. It's just a few chapters long. Um, but in your notes you have a little bit about Song of Songs, and, and I'm going to just go through those right now. First, it's a song. Now, that should be obvious, right, that it's a song, but sometimes it's not immediately obvious because you don't read it and, and, and sing it. You know, <laughs> how awkward would that be? You're singing in the shower, and your wife's all, what are you, what are you singing? You know, it, it's a song, but it's not immediately obvious. Now, early rabbis have categorized all the songs of the Old Testament. The reason why it's called Song of Songs is because it's the best song of the Bible. So rabbis have categorized all the songs in the Old Testament. There's ten songs. There's Miriam's song. There's all sorts of other songs all through the Bible that people sing to rejoice. And rabbis have consistently said, of those ten songs, this Solomon's song is the song of songs. It's the highest level of song. They highly esteem this book. This book, there's more written on this book than any other book of the Bible and is super duper thin. I have a commentary that is 800 pages on this book, and it's only nine chapters long. Isn't that incredible? And so this book has so much written about it. Everybody has focused on this book for a number of years. Why? Because it has to do with sex. It has to do with intimacy. And as people, we kind of care about that sort of stuff, right? The church used to not talk about it much, but I think it's more healthy and important if we talk about it in a biblically God-honoring, correct way. So it's a song, and it was immediately written, rabbis believe it was written to be sung at weddings. 
which if you know anything about the content of this book, today that would be a bit awkward to sing this song at a wedding. In fact, a couple years ago, I was at a wedding, and they said, oh, we're going to have Uncle so-and-so pray for the food, and the uncle starts praying for the food, and, and he starts praying for the couple, and then he starts praying for the day, and then, you know, it's just almost like he was racking his brain for what, like, he didn't, wasn't praying long enough, so he thought, what else could I pray for? And then he started praying about the wedding night, and we were like, this is getting awkward. And then he started praying about sex, and we were like, you know, Pastor Dave is losing it, laughing on the corner over here. I felt horrible, but I, it just was so shocking. I didn't know what to do. That's why I laughed. Uh, <laughs> you shouldn't be the one laughing at weddings, especially if you're the pastor. Um, but th- this was meant to be sung at weddings to show a beautiful display of God's glory and majesty through the marriage relationship. Number two, it's a song about human love in the context of marriage. That'll be on your notes. It's a song about human love in the context of marriage. Now, this is key. Because this is poetry, you're not gonna, they're not going to open up with an introduction. You're not going to jump into it and say, they got married on this date or whatever. We know that later on, like as you read the book, we know this couple is married. In fact, from the very first chapters, we know they're married. There's clues to that. And so we know that this is all done within the context of the covenant of marriage. We're going to talk a lot more about the covenant of marriage later down the road a little bit. And so we know that this is done within the context of marriage. But the reason why this is important is because, like I said, this is the most written about book of the whole Bible. There's been people over the years who have said, this needs to be an allegory. This whole thing is an allegory. The church was afraid of talking about sex. The church was afraid of talking about marriage. So they made everything an allegory. And and here's what one commentator said about a verse. So listen to this verse. This is chapter 1, verse 13. My beloved, and this is the woman speaking, my beloved is, a, to me, a sachet of myrrh between, rising between, I'm sorry, my beloved to me is a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. So there's going to be some human anatomy language in this series, by the way. And what that means is, like, my beloved, she's describing her husband, like, lying on her chest. She's describing the intimacy of that moment. And here's what one commentator said from way back in early church history. The commentator said this, and I just find this hilarious. He said, the, the beloved is like the soul of Christ resting in the heart of the believer, and the breasts are the twin commandments to love God and love your neighbor. <laughs> what? That's not what it says. That's not what it means. It's about human love. Okay? So if you read those old allegories, it literally takes the whole thing, and, and you're reading through it, and you're like, what are they talking about? You know, and so we're not going that direction. I just wanted you to know that. Three, it's found in the Bible. Now, this is obvious because I said turn to it, and it's in your Bible, but it's found in the Bible, and I want to make this point. God designed sex. Over here, as we see that sex becomes transactionalized in our world, the world is hijacking God's good and beautiful gift. And, and, and I think we ought to take it back. It's, it's designed by God. And I think that when you see this transactional view, it so cheapens the biblical view of intimacy and sex. And God is like, it's much better than that. And I think that if we look at this, it, it, you know, God designed us with these human desires, human inclinations, all these things. And I think that we need to look at the designer, right? We need to look at the designer to see how this should play out in our own life. 
And I just want to say that the Bible paints this beautiful and full picture of the marriage relationship. And it's one of those things that when you start to look at it, you're like, yes, that is the way it should be. Number four, it's designed to give us wisdom. Now, this book of the Bible is categorized as wisdom literature. There's a rabbi in the Middle Ages named Rabbi uh, Rashi who argues that Solomon, and some of you know who Solomon is. Solomon uh, was a king of Israel. He had many wives, many concubines. He did not treat the marriage relationship well. He did not, and we know that, that there was the Queen of Sheba. There was all sorts of stuff in his life. So there's been many rabbis who have theorized this, and this is just a theory, so take it or leave it, that Solomon wrote this in his old age, almost to say to his people, listen, do as I say, not as I did. I screwed this up in my life. And I want you to walk in intimacy, not in this in-the-moment, fast, physical world. Because this has consequences. This has big consequences. And if you're not ready for it, the lie here is that there's no emotion attached. But we know the reality is that there's tons of emotion attached. So, that, that's the, the theory here, that Solomon wrote this to say, don't live like I lived, but I'm calling you to a new, better, different way of life in marriage. And so today, because we've had to do all that introductory work about what this series is going to be all about, I'm only going through four verses, but these are juicy verses. So just so you know, we're going through four verses, and then in the rest of the, the time going, we're going to go through a lot more than just four, but today we're just doing four. So Open it up to the Song of Songs. Like I said, it's right after the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, and it is right before the book of Isaiah. If you do not have um, uh, a Bible, it'll be on the screen. And before we read it, I just want to say this. There are three characters. There's the the man, there's the woman who speaks 54% of the time. I didn't say that. You said that. (laughs) And, And the friends. And there's these friends that sort of just chime in, you know, to, to the story. And we're, we're going to see just the woman and the friends today. Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Have you noticed that there's no introduction to this book? A lot of the commentators say, they're like, wow. They just jump right into it, right? And some of you are thinking, she just said, take me to your bedroom. And that's exactly what she just said. So we're just going to jump right into it. One commentator said this, it is an earthquake of sexual language and imagery right off the right off the bat, right in the beginning. It's like we're introduced to the theme of physical love, but where's the backstory? Now, if you've read the Song of Solomon, it it sort of plays like this. Have you ever seen a movie where in the very beginning they show you this scene, and then they go like, you know, um, or, or they show you some scene in the future, and then they say like 10 hours ago, and then it all races up to that last final scene? It, this is sort of like that. So a lot of commentators have said they sort of start in the middle and then they work their way back in there. So if you're wondering about a timeline on this. So she starts with, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And then before she ends, she says, let the king bring me to his chambers. 
another commentator said, this is the hottest book of the Bible. <laughs> in fact, it was so hot, they didn't let children, people read it until they were after age 30. And so, by the way, this is not going to be PG-30. This is like PG-13. So let me, let me keep going. So let's break this down. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Here's what I want to show you. There's a great balance in this passage, in this poetry. Poetry sort of does this A-B thing or, or A-A thing. Um, sorry, I just unloaded biblical interp on you. It's sort of like the phrase and then the second thought that supports that phrase. And so what, here's what she does. Kiss me. Something physical, right? Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth for your love. The emotion, the intimacy is more delightful than, than wine. She's saying it's not just the physical and it's not just the emotional. In our marriage relationship, it's both. We need both in our marriage relationship. And this is going to be a constant theme. You'll see this play throughout the whole book. And she doesn't want him to just kiss because he's a good kisser, but there's a backstory that we don't really know just yet. She's passionately turned on from him, not because he's a good kisser, but because of the way that he loves her. Does that make sense? It's because of the way that he loves her. Now, what I, what's also really cool here is that this woman totally undercuts ancient stereotypes about women. Women were not supposed to necessarily be the pursuers of their husbands. They were supposed to sit back and, and the, let the husband take total control, but not this lady. This woman was like, no, I love you. We are in a passionate marriage relationship, and I want you. And she's turned on because of the way that he loves her. Married men, is your love for your wife so powerful that it, it makes her excited to be around you? That she's like, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. When was the last time your wife said that to you, right? They're like, probably never, so your love needs to, you know, chart up a little bit, right? Yeah. You're welcome, ladies. <laughs> Statistically, Statistically, 70%, listen to this, 70% of your marriage depends on being friends. Where do we get that number from? There's a book that was written, um, there's a book that was written that simply talks about this. It, it talks about the seven biggest things in your marriage. And it talks about how statistics show, they've done all these studies on married couples, and your sat marriage, level of marriage satisf satisfaction, man, I can't get no satisfaction today. I can't get the words out. Your marriage satisfaction actually depends on whether or not you've built intimacy and you're actually friends. We know this. We've seen this. Relationships that are based purely on the transaction of sex fizzle out because they realize later on that they're not compatible. They're not friends. Whereas relationships that start here, get married, and then end up here, end up being great. There's actual statistics to back this up. I always tell men in premarital counseling that your love for your spouse should be so powerful that they have no other rational or logical reason to, but to love you in return. That's, that's like the only logical response. So guys, I, I think that's your call. I mean, you, you re start reading Ephesians chapter 5, which we're going to get into more in this series. Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about hus husbands and wife, the marriage relationship. It talks about husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. In other words, be ready to die for her. Give yourself up for her. Love her so much that she has no other logical response but to love you back. It would be insane not to love you back. 
So you should physically want each other because you've done this work. If this isn't working out for you right now, married couple, work on this. Verse 3. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. Again, something physical. Pleasing is the fragrance. You smell that. That's physical. And then your name, something emotional. Your name is your character, who you are as a person. It's all about who you are. And and so she said, something physical, you smell great to me. And that's partially because in these times, you stunk, right? I mean, how many of you, (laughs) you really, you could go to the mitzvah, the Jewish bath, you can go down the river, but, you know, some people were lucky enough to have baths on their roof, but that's just some people, right? You didn't bath, bathe all the time. And and so you kind of stunk a little bit, so you put perfume on to mask the smell. And it was very um, regular to put perfume on before lovemaking, so you didn't stink. (laughs) That's just, I didn't make that up. Anyways, Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume. It goes before you. Your character, all who you are. Guys, your character turns your wife on. Ladies, your character, who you are, is one of the reasons why your husband loves you. Pre-married people, if you're here and you're single, your character matters so much. Let me tell you a story about when I was in high school. A little bit before I was a Christian, I was in high school, and I was in this group of friends, and there was this girl that I really dug. I really liked her, and and I liked her a lot. And and um, and I, I was I used a bit of foul language. I, I said a bad word, and then she just said, "Ew." And I was like, that just cut me down to size. It, it wasn't like, "Ew, I think you're disgusting." It's your character, who you are as a person. I don't like that, and, and that's unattractive to me. And I just went, whoa. That stuck with me as a huge life lesson. That was also the day I stopped cussing, right? Because a girl didn't like it. I became a Christian shortly after, and I realized, oh, this is just a great, great timing, I guess. But it crushed me because her ew was saying, your character is all that matters. Where is your character right now? It's so true. Single ladies, look at character. Look at their innermost life. Look at who they are when, when no one else is looking. Look at the type of person they are. It's so key. And as a dad of girls, ladies, I really want you to look at their character. It really matters. Because we, we know that people tend to become more of who they are. So if they have a trajectory of their life of following Jesus, then they're going to become more of that. Or if they have a trajectory of their life of, ah, Jesus is sort of, ah, and then I'll do whatever I want to do then you kind of become more of that. Without the transformation of Jesus, you just simply become more of who you already are. So this is super important. When God sent Samuel to look and anoint a new king, he went to all of David's kids. I'm I'm sorry, all of of, uh, the sons of Jesse, Jesse's sons. And he saw all these big strapping dudes, and and he was like, surely the next king is in one of these. And and he said, it is, but don't call me Shirley. That was an airplane joke, mainly for me because I said the word Shirley. I know. So 
surely this is one of the, the next kings of Israel. And, and God kept telling him, no, it's not them, it's not them, it's not them. And he said, do you have any more? And they're like, yeah, but he's kind of the runt. He's kind of the youngest guy. He's out in the fields. We don't even, he's the youngest. Like, we're not even really paying attention to him. So go get him. And he brought him, and this is what God said. First Samuel 16, verse 7, he said, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Be very wary, single ladies, of what guys put out there on Facebook. It's a sham. Uh, Or Facebook's kind of dated if you're a single lady right now, like a college student. Uh, uh, Snapchat, okay? If you're, you know, be, be very wary. Uh, of what people put out there as their persona. Is that really who they are as a person? Or are they just looking to craft an image? Look at their heart. Do you look at the things that God looks at? Do you value the same things that God values? Do you value integrity? Do you value these things? I have a question that will solve this really fast for you. And that is, who is your life organized around? Who is your life organized around? If, if you're single and you're dating a person that their life is organized around themselves, it might be good in the moment, but it'll be hard because more and more selfishness will ensue. That's just the case. If you're dating a person that their life is organized around Jesus Christ, then more selflessness will ensue. It's just the pattern, it's just the way this works. Who is your life organized around? And even in your marriage, you have to ask that question because selfishness kills marriage. I can tell you this, 100% of the time I've ever been in a scenario where I'm dealing with couples who are having problems, the number one problem is selfishness. Number one problem is selfishness. Who is your life organized around? You have problems in your marriage? Is it selfishness? Ask that right now. Verse 4. She says, take me away with you. Now, now let, me, let me recap real quick. She says, kiss me. I, I, I love you. Kiss me. Your love, the way you love me, is better than wine. And then she says, you smell great to me. Like, like your name, it just sort of wafts before me because you smell so great. And I just think of your character when, when I smell you. And, and it's pleasing. It's delightful. Now she just gets all crazy and says, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. I don't think you need to go to seminary to figure out what this verse just said, right? Let the king bring me to his chambers. She's saying, look, we have the marriage relationship. We have the intimacy. Let us go enjoy the physical. But here's the most important piece of this that you would probably miss if you didn't understand um, ancient Jewish weddings. She says this, let the king bring me to his chambers. Now, Many people have read this, like King Solomon, and she's referring to King Solomon. But the, the bulk of writers out there, the, the sort of like the brain of, of theology says that the guy here is sort of like, you're supposed to, as men, you're sort of supposed to go into his shoes. You're supposed to read yourself. It's almost like a parable in that way. And ladies, in, in the ladies' time, you, in the ladies' voice, you sort of put yourself in the ladies' shoes. And, and so probably what she is saying is on your wedding day and when you got married, women called their men my king and men called their wives my queen. And that was language that they used especially for each other and especially in the bridal chamber. 
let the king take me away. Because her love for him is like, you're a king to me. And he looked at her and it's like, you're a queen to me. Married couples, is, is that the way you see your spouse? Is that the way you see your spouse? And here's what's important there. It's not king and princess. It's not king and duchess. It's not king and servant. It's king and queen. And that's so important in the marriage relationship. It's equal position. Now, you might have different influence around the house, different roles, all that stuff. Uh, you know, you guys decide that in your own, in your own household. You might do different things and all that stuff. But in Ephesians 5.21, when the Apostle Paul is addressing the church about marriage, he starts with this one phrase. He starts with the phrase by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's saying, look, husbands and wives, you're on equal footing with each other. Submit to one another. Work things out together. Surrender to each other. This is what marriage is, is surrendering. Right? You leave your selfishness and your, your own single identity, and, and the two become one flesh. It's surrendering your singleness. So submit to one another. Give yourselves to one another. When marriage is centered on Jesus, and you are mutually submitted to each other, then the friends begin to speak up and say, we rejoice and delight in you. We praise your love more than wine. And I would just say this, dating people, do you have friends that you trust and affirm? And that would affirm you in your relationships. Or friends that would say, eh, man, it's a bad move. I, I was, um, I don't believe it or not, I've, I've, my wife and I have been married 10 and a half years now. And um, before I even knew my wife, I was, I was dating a person, really nice person, really great person, all that stuff. And, um, but I had friends that were like, yeah, we just don't see it. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, this bird's perfect for me. And they're like, yeah, you know, she's really nice. She's a great, great person. We just don't see it. And I'm like, well, thank you for being honest with me. I just thought they were crazy. But you've got to understand, in those early months, you're blinded by love, right? And, and once the blinders sort of came off, we both sort of realized, hey, this isn't going to work out. And so we mutually got out of that relationship. But do you have friends who are there for you saying, this is a great thing? Friends that you trust. Friends that you trust in a pinch, because that's really, really important. Listen to them, because when you enter into a relationship, you have to know you're entering totally blinded, because you just love that other person, right? They're just amazing. They're wonderful, and, and oh, you know what? They, they said some mean things to a teacher, but isn't that cute? You know, like, you're just totally blinded. So have some friends that you really trust, that, that will speak up for you when you're totally blind. I think that's a really important point here. So let's begin to wrap this up. <laughs> we got more fill-ins. I want to just wrap this up with a few points. Desire is not demonic. Desire is not demonic. All through Genesis, God speaks about creation, and he says it is good. Over and over, he affirms that again. The Bible rejoices in the correct expression of sexual desire but also warns of the damage of just living in this world. And maybe you, you, this is you, and like the way I describe this, you're like, yep, that's me. I just want to let you know that repentance is available. Like Jesus wants to, to totally redeem all that. He wants to help you put that in the past and walk forward. So don't think like, oh, I'm damaged goods or anything. That's a lie from the enemy. But desire is not demonic. Let me, let me get this verse out. Verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20, 
the Apostle Paul is talking to the church, and he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. See, what the Bible is saying is that your unchecked desire, if you're just living in this world, your unchecked desire can be very, very breaking. It could break you. It could break you if you just go down the path of physical. I mean, I think when you start to see things in our media, like the whole Harvey Weinstein, Matthew Lauer, all that stuff, they've probably figured out by now that their unchecked physical stuff can lead to untold emotional damage. And it's not those guys necessarily. I'm concerned about it's the women that I'm more concerned about. Their emotional damage. The women who they abuse have certainly had to deal with this emotional carnage. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. I just want to challenge you. Do you do that? Do you honor God with your bodies? Character and chemistry matter. I've heard this story before. Oh, he was so rich. Oh, she was so beautiful. Oh, you know, it's like we just had tons of fun together, right? I've heard this story before. And I just want to say, like, in my most educated voice possible, that's just so stupid. (laughs) Don't be stupid. There we go. We've settled that now. (laughs) Philippians 2 talks about the character of Jesus. And and, and I want to just challenge you, just write Philippians 2 down. Go home and read it and say, Is this character showing up in my life? Is it showing up in my marriage? Is it showing up in my dating life? Is it showing up everywhere around me? Is the character of Jesus showing up? Don't fall into the trap of the physical because the physical was created for you, but but the pathway is through the emotional. The pathway is through intimacy. I love what Philippians 2.15 says. After all the talk about imitating Jesus and the way Jesus is, he literally says, Paul says this to the church in Philippi. He says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Do you shine to your spouse? Do you shine like a star in the sky? Are they attracted more to your character than your looks? Do you shine to them? All right, almost finishing up here. The flame doesn't need to fizzle. Okay, married people, you got some homework. If you don't date your spouse... Your homework this week is to take your spouse on a date. That's it. If you haven't been on a date in a while, take your spouse on a date. John, that could happen at the hospital, right? You could bring her something, flowers, if that doesn't make her sick. I don't know what it, what it is. But you, your flame doesn't have to fizzle. The American, the, now keep in mind, this is an American Puritan poet. These guys are very pure people, right? They wear the hats and everything. American Puritan poet Edward Taylor described his love for his wife as a golden ball of pure fire. Can you say that about your spouse right now? This is what I hope this series does for you married people. That your marriage um, maybe has slid into a physical transaction. Right? Because I think the lie we tell ourselves is like, oh, I'm a married person. Of course we have intimacy. But, you know, intimacy is something that needs to be worked on all the time. It's said that it takes um, 24 seconds to turn a man on and 24 hours to turn on a woman. I don't know if that's true. I just read it in one of the commentaries, and he wrote, he wrote that kind of tongue-in-cheek. 
intimacy needs to be worked on and built all the time. So if you're in a marriage relationship, I would tell you, don't work on this, work on this, and you'll get that. Does that make sense? Work on intimacy, and the physical will come. And lastly, I want to tell you this. And this is so key, this is so important. Ask Christ to be the center. Ask Jesus Christ to be the center. Whether it's you're a single person, Jesus, I just need to organize my life around you. Because my dating life will go better, my marriage life will go better when when you're the center. Married people, maybe Jesus isn't the center of your marriage. Maybe your kids have become the center of your marriage. And while kids are wonderful and beautiful, that'll pay you horrible damage when they go off to college. Because all of a sudden you're going to be like, we're just two business partners working to put these kids through college. They're on the payroll. You know, like, that's what the mentality will be. Kids are very important, but they're not the center of your marriage. Love is very important. It's not necessarily the center of your marriage. And when you put Jesus at the center of your marriage and you imitate him, then your marriage will begin to be transformed because Jesus transforms people. That's his main job. He makes you into new people. So maybe you're here and you're a little spiritually dusty. I want to just encourage you that the most important thing you could do, the most important gift you could give your spouse is to follow Jesus more deeply and closely. Because as you follow Jesus more deeply and closely, your character will be transformed. And as your character is transformed, then you'll start to realize, I need to have more intimacy and pay more attention to my spouse. And as that happens, you know, then, of course, the physical will happen. But I just want to encourage you. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm just spiritually dusty. I just want to invite you to pray Psalm 51. Where it says, Jesus, restore, well, it doesn't say Jesus because it's a psalm, but I, I put the word Jesus in there. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Maybe you're here and you've never put Jesus first. You, you're a fan of Jesus, but you've just never put him first in your life. I just want to challenge you throughout this series. Your marriage life will change when you put Jesus first. Your dating life will change when you put Jesus first. Your priorities will change when you put Jesus first. I just want to encourage you to do that. And, and it's simply just a matter of, okay, I'm putting Jesus first in my life, and then saying, Lord, how can I serve you today? Walking with Jesus each and every day. Because when he transforms you, he'll transform your marriage too. I just want to invite you to pray now. As we close, I just want to invite you to pray out, and I want to invite the band to come forward. And, And maybe you're here, and you simply need to put Jesus first in your life today. I want to encourage you to do that right now. Maybe you're here and you need to dust off some of that, you know, you're, you're a little rusty and you need to dust off some of that rust and, and you need to say, okay, I need to start following you closer, Jesus. I want to encourage you to do that as well. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we want to have renewed marriages. We want to have strong marriages that reflect all who you are. God, we want marriages that, that are written about like the Song of Songs that are fun and passionate and emotionally enriching. Lord, we want marriages that show you off. Lord, I want to pray for dating people today, single people. Lord, I pray that they would center their lives on you and their character would be more and more redeemed each day and that they would begin to follow you even more deeply, God, and that they would be able to to look at the character of a person and, and the content of their character rather than what they look like on the outside. Lord, I pray that you'd use this church, use us as transformed people to help restore some marriages. Father, help us to work on intimacy 
and to be intimate with you so that we could be even better for our spouses. If there's anyone here who simply needs to say, Jesus, I want to put you first. I want to accept you into my life. That could change right now with the prayer. And it it simply would just go like this, Lord, I surrender myself to you. Help me to put you first in all that I do. Help me to put you first in my life, in my marriage, with my kids, with my family, and at work. Lord, we give ourselves to you. I pray that you would bless the people in our congregation and bless their marriages as they continue to journey with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.